Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Good evening and welcome in once again to the QB11 show. I am Doug Scott, joined, of course, as always, by QB11 himself. Andrew, how are you today? I'm doing well, Doug. You have a good Halloween weekend or whatever you would like to call it? Uh, yep, just kind of getting ready. We decorate our house pretty good every year, so I always have a lot of trick-or-treaters tomorrow. So with all the rain and the wind we've had, I had to kind of do some repairs and fixes and stuff on the on the display so i did some of that and got it all ready for tomorrow night so are you a full-size candy bar guy or are you a mini candy guy like in terms of hand i get like somewhere around four to five hundred trick-or-treaters so i i'm not giving out 500 full size like so you're going you're going cheap on the community gotcha no 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 i go i i i go snack size so it's bigger than fun size go snack size and then (laughs) And then I keep a stash of full size candy bars. So when I like when the kids from my neighborhood that I know come by, I give them a full size. Okay, that's respectable. Yeah, I'll if even... I had like fifty trick or treaters, yeah, it'd be all full size for sure. Yeah, those were always like the really cool houses. Yeah, those were right. some far between. Some people just like to settle with being a mediocre house or like an average house. You're like the jag of Halloween houses. I invest in the decorations and I put on a show. I got lights, I got fog, I got sounds, I got I got the whole shebang. So okay. that's where that's, we're going to give them a show. I, I can respect that. All right, hey. enough of that. <laughs> <laughs> the Ducks um, Ducks pulled off a, a pretty easy victory, at least past the first quarter at Cal this past weekend, uh, winning by a score that I don't remember at the moment. This is really starting swell. This is great podcasting. I think we should just keep this rolling. Just keep this rolling. Yeah, 42 to 24 down at Cal in a, in a game that, you know, was a little bit touch and go there for the first quarter. I think Oregon struggled a little bit, had some red zone troubles in the first half, similar to the Washington State game, but then to really turn it on and, you know, mid second quarter, um, won the middle eight again, touchdown, stop, half, touchdown. And uh, and pulled away after that before Cal put a couple of uh, garbage time scores on the board to to make it look closer than it really was. Yeah, Early thoughts on this game? Yeah, kind of the same thing um, that you're talking about between two turnovers. Although, like to be fair, neither one of those interceptions were really on Bo. One was just a hail mary to the end zone that ended up getting picked off. Not a play that really actually affected uh, possession in any meaningful way. Um, and then the uh, drop pass by Franklin that kind of bounced into a defender's hands. Um, an unfortunate red red zone turnover, uh, second red zone interception of the season for Knicks. But yeah, like early game drive chart, not super friendly for the Ducks. I mean, punt, turnover on downs, punt, um, and then a touchdown before the interception. But once once you got got past that interception, the Oregon offense really kind of kicked into gear, going touchdown, touchdown, um, end of half with that pick on the hail mary. And then touchdown t- 
to start the se- the second half, kind of establishing the dominance to to go out and finish off this game. But overall, it was it was a little bit sloppy at times, especially early. I think there was a pretty obvious hangover in the first quarter from that UCLA game, and once once we got that worked out and worked through, it was a pretty dominant performance, all, all things considered. Yeah, I think you you called that possible hangover on our preview podcast, so kudos to you for for calling that out as a potential uh, possibility. I think the good thing was it it didn't linger, right? Like, I think we've seen in the past with some of the Oregon teams, you kind of come out with that kind of hangover effect, and it ends up being, you know, an all-game-long thing, and you're in a dogfight, and next thing you know, you need a stop on the last play of the game just to just to avoid overtime or avoid a loss. And that didn't happen here. I mean, they got, they certainly had the hangover. They got out of their system and, and really by halftime were, were up very comfortably. And, and the game was never really in doubt after that. I will also note, you know, Oregon, despite their offensive struggles in this game, which, you know, I think were, were far too many, they put up 586 yards of offense, which was the most that Cal has given up in the entire Justin Wilcox era. So the offense continues to roll when they don't shoot themselves in the foot. Yeah, and I think that this is probably our worst rushing performance of the year, and that includes the Georgia game. Like just in terms of um, like going back and watching the film, the way that the offensive line performed at times in the run game. Like we had some guys kind of kind of leaning, like having some mechanical failures and missing blocks, and um, that that's something that we really haven't seen. I thought pass protection was very strong in this game. But the thing that stands out to me the most about this game, like, yes, like there was some lackadaisical kind of energy coming off the team early in this game. But Nix is like playing by far the best football of his career, but he's also playing the best football of his his time at Oregon right now. Um, he He's playing with substantial confidence and his command over the system and the offense and, and how he's getting through progressions, getting us in and out of the right plays. Uh, just just the overall command and how his presence um, in the pocket as a passer right now and just the way that he's able to operate and, and move the offense up and down the field, he is playing, like even relative to like Eastern Washington or BYU, like Bo is playing at a substantially like better click than he was earlier in the season. And I think that's just a matter of experiencing success, the team kind of gelling into this new offensive system. Um and the the dividends for that are being seen now. Like w- even when you're maybe not clicking on all cylinders early in a game, you have a couple t- uncharacteristic turnovers, uh, maybe a, a couple drives that stall out that you're not used to. Like they're still just coming out with this. They're like exuding this confidence and this like arrogance that they can score on every drive. And and the quarterback is really uh, kind of the mouthpiece uh, for that kind of intangible quality to the offense. Yeah, this is going to sound crazy to say because I, I do agree with everything you said. Nick's has just been playing at an incredibly high rev level. But that being said, like I think this was his worst game since Stanford. You know, four oh, I weeks disagree. Ago. Like, I, 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 I just mean like his accuracy. I'm not even talking about the interceptions. Like that was nothing. But like he, he misfired four or five times this game on on which we just hadn't seen in the last month. Like we hadn't seen that level of inaccuracy from him. And and again, it wasn't the whole game. And he and Look, by no means am I saying he had a bad game because he didn't. I mean, 412 yards, three touchdowns, and then another three on the ground on 59 yards. Like, it's a masterful game, and he's playing at a highly dominant level. All I'm saying is it was his worst game out of the last four, and it was still an A game. Like, that's yeah. incredible. I mean, you're right. He did. He missed 
he missed like I don't think he missed four or five throws. He missed a handful of throws, maybe maybe a couple, like two or like three or four. Um and like to be fair, those weren't easy throws. Like the one to Franklin on the move, like he was he didn't have time to get his hips moving towards the line of scrimmage. Um and so that ball died on him a little bit. But when you think about some of the plays he was making on the move, like escaping maybe a little bit of pressure or just extending plays outside the pocket. Um I think of there's a throw to Sean Dollars stepping up into the pocket, coming all the way down to like his fifth read on the right sideline. There's the one to Herbert. Um, like he he is like playing at a like at a graduate level within this system right now. And yes, I guess maybe this was a game where he missed more throws than he's missed throughout the rest of the season. Um, there was also plays left on the field by drops in this game, like a long yeah. throw to Hudson that would have been a touchdown. And I mean, for him to throw for 412 yards, and again, the two interceptions, like to me, I I could care less about those. Neither one of those are really no. meaningless. Me- yeah, they're. I mean, though, I mean, meaningless other than they, you know, the 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 one that Franklin dropped, for, uh, frankly, would have been a first and goal at the one yard line. So it took seven points off the board. Yeah, that one that one's more meaningful, but it wasn't it wasn't Nix's error. No. Um, whereas the other one, I guess you could consider it Nix's error, but it's a completely meaningless play as long as they get get the guy on the ground uh doesn't like change possession in any meaningful way but i'm more speaking to the way that he is playing within the system than than the actual ex like maybe physical execution in terms of accuracy in this game because he is he's running the offense at a substantially higher level than he was when we played stanford like oregon really just kind of rolls out of bed and drops 40 now um even when they're not playing their sharpest game overall as a team that says a lot. So that that's I guess that's more what I'm getting. At. I think we're saying the same thing, but maybe just focusing on different aspects. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I mean, the way he the, the way he's executing the offense, he's total command of this offense, right? I mean, we we heard a lot in the in the in the week about how he has a lot of freedom to to check out a plays at the line of scrimmage, um, you know, check into different plays and stuff like that. But but you can also see like regardless of whether the plays you know, coming in or are ones that he checked into or, or coming in from Kenny, like the way he's executing once that ball is snapped is, is just an incredibly high level, like making the right read, making the right decision, even, you know, so much as like, you know, when to get out and run, um, you know, when to, when to really get out and one, when to run to pass. Right. I mean, and then when he does that, like where he decides to go with the ball and deliver it, like it's, it's next level. It, it was insane to me. I was reading, uh, something on on Twitter, you know, this week, uh, an opposing fan base was was talking about Oregon, and and they said that, well, Bo's a one read quarterback, and I just laughed. I'm like, what like, what games are you watching? I mean, no, he, he's going through full field progressions. Like, yeah. this, is, this offense is not being watered down to pander to a quarterback who doesn't have the the mental aptitude to play a full field offense. That is that is so far from the truth of what's happening. Um, like he's getting he's getting off primary reads to reads that are like not even really part of the play, except for in like very rare situational stuff against certain coverages. So um, I, I highly disagree with that statement. I think um, anybody who's saying that either doesn't know what they're looking at or hasn't really watched. Yeah, I, I, I you know it's Twitter, so a lot of times you know narratives rule the day and they don't you know no one cares whether the narratives are tr- true or based on any kind of actual study right it's somebody wants something to be true so they post it and it gets you know spouted off on i just i that i had to bring it up because i just 
I almost it, you'd be proud of me, QB. I didn't I didn't actually reply back. You I wanted ditch. to. I thought about it. I'm like, nope. This is a pointless <laughs> conversation. I'm gonna walk away from it. I don't have to prove everyone wrong, even when they are. I can just let them be wrong, and it's okay. Oh, a breakthrough moment here on the podcast. That's that's truly tremendous. They're few and far between, unfortunately, but I resisted <laughs> in the moment. That's fair. But yeah, let's transition over, I guess, and talk a little bit about the defense. I guess I think the offense is pretty self-explanatory. The 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 passing game won the day here for the Ducks. Um, run game maybe not as efficient as we're used to. It wasn't bad. I just think part this was partially due to Cal's defensive structure. That Cal made it pretty clear early in this game that they, they we were going to have to beat them through the air, and so we did, and we shredded them through the air. And uh, Nick's targeted like eight different pass catchers, I believe, in meaningful time. Um, actually, more than that, he targeted eleven different pass catchers in meaningful time in this game. Eleven, eleven ducks recording catches. Um, Worth noting, Chase Cota left this game early with an injury, didn't return. Troy Franklin left the game with an injury right before the half, came back and played in the second half and looked fine. Um, but Chase Cota did tweet out after the game that he's going to be okay. So uh, good news on the injury front for the Ducks, it appears, uh, with, with two guys that have been pretty important to the offense at this point this season. But that created some opportunities for Dante Thornton to come into the game um, and get more run. And frankly, like he only had the one catch, but... I was unbelievably impressed with him as a perimeter blocker in this game. Uh, on, on Patrick Herbert's long touchdown run, he sustained a block in the end zone for like f- almost probably f- almost five full seconds that enabled Herbert to rumble, bumble, and stumble his way into the end zone from about 40 yards out. So um, seeing guys play well and play physical um, when they get their opportunity and and off the ball, away from the ball, that really speaks to the culture, I think, that's been instilled. And, um, good, good for Thornton, and I'm glad to see him getting additional opportunities here. Yeah, I totally agree. And and like you said, switching over to the defense, you know, 24 points doesn't look great, but when you take it in the context, um, I think there's some. You know, Cal, as we know, does not have a good offense, right? So I don't, I don't think the Oregon defense was was lights out or anything like that. But their last two drives accounted for 150 yards and, and 14 points, you know, against our, you know, against Oregon second and third stringers. So, you know, it was, it was, you know, 42 to 10 or, or I don't know, we probably scored one in, in the middle there, but they had 10 points going into those last two garbage time drives and they put up 150 yards and 14 touchdowns. So they had 402 total yards, which means they really had about 250 yards of, of meaningful offense. And, you know, I think that's that's not bad. Like, I, you know, I think we bottled up the running game. Oregon bottled up the running game pretty well. Jaden Knott ended up with 14 carries for 57 yards. But I think, you know, a, a sizable amount of that was late in the game as well. Uh, we really shut down the running game pretty effectively most of the game. And, um, you know, outside of the one drive early where I think Cal kind of drove down and, and scored and took the lead, after that, we just we just shut them down and, and they didn't do anything on offense until, until that garbage time. And so, I, you know, I think the biggest number here is Cal's third down conversion rate three for 15. So Oregon has not been a good third down uh, defensive team this year at all. Uh, so, you know, holding them for the three out of 15 is pretty good. Unfortunately too, they were two for two on fourth down, which is, you know, not good, but you know, I think there's, a, there's some positives to take out of this game on the defensive side. Uh, you know, still a lot of work to do. Yeah, I, I think there was also some pretty tough contested catches made early in this game by Cal receivers and against good coverage. Uh, there's one in particular on, I think, Cal's first, or no, their second drive, I apologize, 
uh, with with Gonzo and really good coverage where Sertivant makes a really nice adjustment on the ball. And so as, occasionally sometimes it's just guys making good plays against good coverage. Um, but there were still far too many breakdowns in interior zones and um, just in-breaking routes in general and like down and distance situations, whether it was third uh, where Oregon did perform better, but fourth down was particularly disappointing in this game. Uh, Oregon's getting closer to get finding stops, but again, just the consistency down and down against the pass needs to continue to improve. Um, I agree with you. The the front seven played really well. Being 2.8 yards per rush on 26 attempts uh, is a really, really strong performance by the Oregon defensive front. And I think that the depth of the linebacker room kind of almost getting forced into playing a little bit earlier in this game, but also as this game got into garbage time showing itself, Keith Brown deserves another shout out. Like he athletically looks completely different than he did a year ago. And that's credit to him. Um, the strength and conditioning staff and the nutrition staff for identifying kind of what his optimal weight would be where he could express his athleticism the best. He's been exceptional, like out in space. He had a really, really tough open field tackle in this game where he, where he looked really good running sideline to sideline. Um, with Bass's ejection, which is also notable for Oregon's game against Colorado, is he'll have to miss the first half unless they, they win an appeal process, uh, which seems highly unlikely based on how those appeals have gone for Oregon already this season. Uh, but just seeing him on the field, seeing Jackson LeDuc get some more extended run, Justin Flo continuing to get more and more snaps, uh, making some good tackles. Uh, and then also, like in the front seven, I think it's worth noting, like with without Taimani available, that forced Keanu Williams into more of a prominent rotational role with with the first team defense, and he played, in my opinion, very well. Um, he didn't have a ton of splash games or splash plays as a pass rusher, but in terms of just down to down consistency, being able to play with good leverage and hands, um, and and play his gap in the run game, I think he's a year away from being a really like like a He's already dependable, but being like a legitimately good player on the defensive line. So good to see that continued development through the season. So where uh, when guys go down, we have more guys on the bench ready to step into roles and not really have a substantial amount of drop off. So good for Keanu Williams. Great for Keith Brown and Jackson LeDuc. Good to see them get more flow, more reps uh, flow, continuing to, to kind of work within the system, learn, get reps and mature. I thought this was Noah Sewell's best game at linebacker as well. Um, and he looks the healthiest he's looked all season. Yeah, so. he, he definitely looks like a different player now than he did earlier in the year, just from a just from a mobility and health and energy standpoint. You know, shout out to DJ Johnson too, two sacks on the day. And I thought Dorless, you know, really impacted the game, especially in the first half. Like he was just everywhere. Um uh, and the line in general, like we Oregon got a lot of pressure, um, particularly on on Plummer, this game um, really made him uncomfortable back there. I think they they had several sacks, but or maybe the two or three, but they had him under duress, you know, and and even hitting him, you know, on on throws quite a bit, and he was pretty beat up. Yeah, and Swinson got some run in this game late. Uh, that it seemed that DJ Johnson was dealing with some cramp, cramping issues. His first rep, his first like major rep in this game in a pass rush situation, he almost had a strip sack, like really got around the edge, just kind of mistimed it, uh, and Milner was able to get out and run. But it was it was a hell of a rush off the edge. Like really was able to get to that upfield shoulder and flatten, um, and he was just about a half inch off, and maybe just a little bit of timing off of, of forcing a uh, fumble. Uh, Did so he not good... force that fumble later in the game though? Uh, I don't recall. Off it might have been Swinson. Yeah. But yeah, but it was just it was good to see him get some run, and like again, he's continuing to grow, and um, I think that 
as a pass rusher, that role, I think we see that role expand down the home stretch of the season. Yeah, that'll be good. I think, you know, this one thing I think we've been critical of is Oregon's pass rush has not been as, as, uh, as consistent and effective as, as it probably needs to be as we get down the stretch. So if they can find, find some help there from a guy like Swinson who can, who can come in situationally, situationally and apply, help apply more of that pressure. I think that's a, that's a plus. Before we move on to special teams, and I think that there is some like big time special team stuff to talk about in this game. Um, I, I want to shout out to like, not really shout out, but just shine, shine a light on like Bram Walden saw the field for the first time in an Oregon uniform that I can remember in this game. Maybe he played a little bit like in, a, in garbage time as a f- true freshman, but um, he's been really struggling with injuries since he got to Oregon. Um, for those that maybe follow Scoop Duck or have seen anything, any of the stuff I've written about him in the past, I, I've been a huge fan of his going all the way back to high school. I think his film was some of the best of any of the offensive linemen we'd signed. And I had been starting to kind of write him off almost just because he's just been constantly hurt, unable to stay healthy, really practice at all or get on the field. He, he was able to play in garbage time. Um, and it was limited snaps, but he looked excellent. Like, like physically, he looked healthy he looked really quick and sudden like he did in on his high school film um, climbing to the second level and fitting with no problem if if bram walden can stay healthy and continue to get some of these reps and, and grow um i think he's going to be someone that's a starter level player for oregon next year so getting him back healthy is basically like adding another high four-star player onto this roster um since he's been really unable to stay on the field uh, to this point in his career yeah, I, I I know you texted you, t- you tweeted out you know when when he got the field and I was excited to see that too because yeah he's he's a guy that you know obviously anytime someone battles through injuries like that for multiple seasons you know you you're rooting for someone like that whether you know no matter what team they're on you're rooting for someone like that to like look this is their dream this is you know what they do this is their you know what they're here for and you know battling injuries and not being able to play has to be the worst the worst feeling in the world for for a high level athlete like that so you know kudos for him for putting in all the work to get back on the field and and hopefully this is just the first chapter of many yeah and uh i think you're probably better on special team stuff than i am but i just want to shout out like we had the onside kick last week we blocked a uh, field goal in this game and we also um Oh, there was another special teams play. We almost blocked a punt. I think we should have blocked a punt. <laughs> yeah, we yeah. really should have blocked a punt. So, um, Coach Joe Lorig and his special teams aptitude is starting to show up on a week to week basis um, in different phases of our special teams. Um, so, just seeing the continued growth there, I know the punting hasn't been great. I want to point out that Andrew Boyle actually punted for Oregon in this game, which is definitely a change because uh, Barry and uh, I think he's the third punter we've used this year. Yeah. So, who was the other Barry and um, um, I can't remember. I'll have to go look it up. Bales, Barry Bales, and Bales yep. have been alternating punting duty, pretty much competing this season. Um, and now you have our kickoff specialist doing some punting too. So clearly, and, and, a position that they're not satisfied with the output at, and and they're still still trying to figure out the best option. Yeah, and while we're on the special teams note, I mean, also just you know, Boyle has been exceptional this year at at kicking the ball through the end zone, um, allowing very few kickoff opportunities throughout the course of the season. So you know, and of course, Camden Lewis has been has been performing at a very high level in the limited opportunities he has to kick field goals. And we won't say more than that. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I just 
I think overall, like outside of the punt game right now, and like our punter thankfully hasn't been used or been count, counted on that much. Um, oh, the special teams units are performing at a much more consistent um, and explosive rate than they were maybe over years past. Yeah, I think the coverage teams have been pretty solid. Of course, it's, it's easier to cover punts when they don't go very far, but uh, I think the coverage teams have been pretty solid as well. So, um, yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, you know, I think we did have we did have a good punt. Re- I think that's the one you're missing too. We actually had a 21 yard punt return. Chris Hudson had a 21 yard punt return in this game, and one of the in which was I think the longest of the year, probably the first time we've had a notable punt return all season. So that was that set up Oregon around the 50, and it was notable as well. Yeah, I mean, our the one area like when you look at uh, Parker Stats Awards, he, he tweets out is. Um, kind of statistical advanced statistical superlatives ahead of games. The one area that Oregon's offense isn't like top five in college football or top 10 in college football right now is average starting field position. Like the return game, whether it's through punt or kicks has not been particularly good. Um, And so if that area can, can gain even a little bit of modicum of explosiveness, it's going to really propel this offense even more and, and give it better, um, better opportunities at scoring drives. So something, something to monitor as we move forward here into the rest of the season. Yeah, I think not too much more to say about this game other than, you know, once again, you know, Oregon goes on the road against a team that they should take care of business against, and they do. You know, just like the Arizona game a few weeks back and, and several home games, like Oregon has just been taking care of business week after week after week, and especially in this stretch you know, outside of the UCLA game, right? They had a couple before and a couple after, which are games that they should win pretty comfortably, and they've win, win, been winning pretty comfortably. Obviously, they have the Colorado at Boulder coming up this weekend. It's another one of those games Oregon should win very comfortably. And then and then the season gets really interesting for that final three games. So, you know, it, it's refreshing to see. It's what we had all hoped for. It's what we keep seeing week after week, and, and I think that's uh, that's good news for Oregon fans. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. It's, it's, uh, it's not something that should be taken for granted. Like Oregon has not performed at the, uh, at this rate on the road in recent years. And so to be able to just pick up, pick up, go on the road, drop 40 points, uh, and continue to kind of grow within your systems on a weekly basis is something that should be enjoyed by duck fans in this season. I know this sport is very much about looking forward to what's next and, kind of looking past the present but like this has been a super enjoyable season to watch from my perspective uh which was not the case at all last year and like last year was very stressful a lot of one possession te- games against teams that we all felt we were a lot better than um and to see us just come out and really establish what Oregon football is relative to the rest of this conference this year and the ability to travel and and play well on the road and just kind of continue to dominate everybody you play. Um, that's something that's been really, really enjoyable to watch. And I think it's important that fans keep that in perspective and enjoy this 2022 season for what it is. Cause it's been, it's been a blast to watch. Yeah. And obviously we're ending the home stretch now two two thirds of the way through the, the regular season. And, and it's, I think there's a lot of more enjoyable football up ahead. So as we move on into uh, recapping the rest of our games around the, the Pac-12 in the country, I guess we should take this moment to uh, talk about our, our picks oh, gosh. and our we record. Yeah, yeah, you have to, unfortunately, QB. Oh, 
Um, so the bad news is we were both awful this week. Um, the good news is I actually beat you for the first time this season. So yeah. <laughs> um, you won three, lost seven. I yeah. won four, lost six, and we both had a push. So yeah, not, not great. our best week. No, definitely not a uh, staple weekend. I have to get it turned around. Like I, I overthought it way too much this weekend, and I outsmarted myself on a lot of these picks. And so um, hopefully I can avoid doing that going forward. Well, let's start with a game where we both missed, but I think had we had, we had some intel that, that the Fox announcers also didn't have about Cameron Rising and some other players not playing for Utah, we may have picked this one differently. But uh, Utah went on the road up at the, up in the Palouse to Wazoo. They were a seven and a half point favorite. Utah did win the game, twenty one seventeen. Obviously, didn't cover the seven and a half. Uh, thoughts on that game? Yeah, impressive. I mean, going on the going on the road to the Palouse to get a win is never easy. Um, when you do it with a backup quarterback, without your starting running back, without your number one tight end, lose your second tight end during the game. Um, that's a tough thing to do. So I think Utah deserves. Yeah, I mean, and I thought their backup quarterback Barnes, you know, played a, you know, they. I thought the coaching coaching staff did a really good job of putting him in manageable positions, not asking him to be Cam Rising, right? Uh, they they leaned into the run game quite a bit. Uh, they ran the ball 40, 41 times, uh, only threw it twenty seven. So they slowed the game down. They lead or you know sped it up, I guess you could say. You know, lowered lowered the number of plays, lowered the number of possessions, leaned into the running game, and put Barnes in manageable positions, and he he played pretty well. Uh, you know, 175 yards and a touchdown, no turnovers, which is obviously the key. Um, on the other side of the ball, I mean, Washington State only managed 274 yards of offense in this game. And and I don't, I think we'd all agree Utah's defense is not the suffocating, you know, defense that they had last year. I think if, I don't know what happened to Washington State. I thought early in the season they were playing much better than they are now. Uh, and we saw that obviously firsthand against Oregon back in week four. I think if Washington state had even an average quarterback, they win this game. But I, I think Cam Ward is, is, is not an average score. I think he's a below average quarterback. I do. Yeah. Cam Ward for the Washington state offense is simultaneously like a feature um, and a problem. Like he, he does not throw the ball. Like, I don't know. Like, like Washington State does not trust him to throw the ball vertically up the middle. It's all screens to the outside and the occasional like, like wheel route or schemed exterior like outbreaking route to the outside. I don't know. Their passing game is infuriating. Like, it should for a guy who's been in this system for as long as he's been in this system. The fact that they trust him to do so little just kind of says everything I need to know about Cam Ward. Like, it, it's not. No disrespect to the kid, obviously, on a personal level, but just like when your offensive coordinator has been with you your entire career, follow, goes with you to the Power 5 level and is still just only allowing you to throw lateral um, in key situations. Like, they can't really play from a deficit. Like, they, have no, they don't have a lot of comeback capability because once they empty their, like, ga- their couple gadget plays that, that they can scheme – um, to, to get guys open vertically on the outside, they're kind of out of bullets. So um, the defense was, I thought, really good for, for Washington State. There was some questionable officiating in this game, as there is in every Pac-12 game that I think might have had some impact. But uh, by and large, really impressive win for Utah on the road. Not an easy place to play. So 
don't don't take road wins for granted d- despite the margin. No, especially when you're playing shorthanded and with your quarterback and everybody else out. Yeah, I, you know, go back to Ward a little bit. I watching the game and I, I watched this whole game. It amazed me how many times Ward like ran himself into a sack, right? I mean, he looks like he should be fairly athletic and have some escapability, and, but he just picks the wrong direction to run. Well, he does. Like, he's just, he's very tense. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but like yeah. I was getting really frustrated with this too. I know you and I were exchanging some text during this game. He's very, everything he does is lack, lackadaisical. Everything is so slow and deliberate. And he is a pretty explosive athlete and a pretty explosive runner. But he's never decisive. Like it's always, it's always half speed, and he never really puts his foot in the ground and gets north south to get away. And because of that, you're right. He runs himself into sacks. He's late on throws. I think it's why he doesn't really throw the ball over the middle often. I think it's why they kind of confine him to throwing screens or outside breaking routes away from traffic because he just takes forever to get through anything. How how many times did did Washington State? throw the swing pass to the back out of the backfield for a four yard loss. I, I uh, mean, like lot. 10. I mean, it was, it was every time they threw that pass, I'm like, there's another four yard loss. I mean, it was just like, everyone knew it was coming. Why? And Utah is a solid tackling team. They have, you know, decent speed on at those outside. I mean, that, that play was never going to work and they kept calling it over and over and over again. Also, the one thing I noticed about Washington State, this is something I saw with Ward on the, on the times he did run, but I also saw it from the, some of the receivers and backs too. Like the amount of, and I think I sent you a text on the on this during the game too. The amount of times I saw a Cougar turn whatever their gain should have been into two or three yards less than that with some weird like move at the you know at the point of tackle was was astounding to me. Like they ran you know parallel to the sideline or they tried to like spin out of a tally and it was like okay i got the sticks are right there i need a four yard gain the guy's at three yards and all he has to do is like power through the tackler or dive forward and instead he tries to like go around him to the sideline and ends up short and it must have happened like 10 times this game i was astounded by by that it's so counterintuitive too because if you watch washington state play defensively like all of the the character traits of them as a defensive unit that i think are really impressive like the way that they tackle, the aggressiveness that they flow to the ball, how decisive and fast they play, all of those things are like the exact opposite on offense. They're just lethargic and slow and tentative, and they're looking for places to fall instead of fighting for important yardage, especially situationally. Um, and it sucks. Like that defense is actually like pretty good, like especially relative to how bad Pac-12 defenses are this year. It's, it's like yeah. Relative to this conference, it's a very good defense. Um, and it's just getting wasted by an offense that is just soft, frankly. Like, just not – I don't know. I, I don't see it with them. Another important note, uh, just move, looking forward here towards the Oregon-Utah game in a couple weeks, Clark Phillips left this game with an injury. I don't recall seeing him come back in. So, um, hope he's healthy. But if he's not, that's a huge, huge loss. Like, yeah. pretty easily the best defender for Utah. So, uh, well, and they're going up against one. Arizona this coming week, so you know, and they're passing attack. So if he's not able to go there, that's something to watch out for. Yeah, but uh, definitely their best defensive player. Well, credit to Utah for getting that tough road win, and and obviously they have two home games against Arizona and Stanford coming up, which on paper you know should be pretty comfortable victories. You know, setting up a showdown, you know, at Odson on the nineteenth with Oregon, and and Utah continues to keep pace in that top four of the conference. 
Yeah. Moving on here. Um, game down here in Arizona between USC and Arizona. This was in Tucson. USC came in as almost a 16-point favorite, favored by 15 and a half. Uh, I just want to get this out there. I The officiating at the end of the first half was embarrassing and horrible, but like USC fans constantly trying to like push off the fact that their team is really not that good on on Pac-12 officials and like oh the only reason that we're not blowing everybody out is cuz Pac-12 officiating when you're constantly in dogfights with teams that aren't very good um yeah like you guys just like you're not the team that you guys act like you are and that, that well, much is very clear at this point in the season well and i mean yeah that was a that was a horrific officiating mistake at the end of the first half and it probably cost USC a field goal i mean maybe they would have gone for a touchdown instead but you know they might not have got it so but let's not also forget that they benefited from probably the weakest uh, unnecessary roughness call I've I've seen in a very long time that that turned what would have been a long field goal attempt into a touchdown, and and then the next drive they got a, a very generous uh, pass interference call that extended a drive that turned into a touchdown as well. So that was their last two their last two touchdown drives were aided by by very generous officiating calls as well. So the idea that, that USC is getting screwed by the refs is, it's pretty comical on the balance when you look over the course of the season and how many, how many generous, you know, whistles they do get. It, I think it just comes down to the fact that Pac-12 officiating is bad and it yeah, will be bad and judgment bad calls are judgment calls and it's bad for everybody. And what you got to do against a team like Arizona is what Oregon did. You win the game, you know, at halftime and then it doesn't matter. You just be better, like be better than Arizona. Like USC was better than Arizona in this game. That's why they won. But like the idea that this is, this game would have been a blowout if, if they would have gotten the extra three points at the end of the first half. Like, no, you guys like USC did not stop Arizona like at all. This entire game, they were getting absolutely torched by Arizona's passing game. Um, and it, frankly, Arizona was able to kind of run the ball on them too. And Arizona hasn't been able to run the ball on like hardly anybody this year. So like USC defensively is like I I don't know I I think UCLA is going to beat them straight up I yeah, I just I'm, think that UCLA is a better overall team than USC um, and I think that like a lot of this like vic the self victimization to like protect Lincoln Riley and Alex Grinch from any kind of criticism about this team um, is going to blow up in their face over the course of in the long run here yeah I, the difference in this game was Arizona kicked three field goals in the first half. <laughs> That, you know, instead of getting touchdowns, right? And if they get, you know, even one of those is a touchdown, you know, all of a sudden this is a much different game down the stretch. So their defense, like most defenses in this conference, including Oregon's, is is not where it needs to be. And, and you know, they're reliant on outscoring teams. And obviously with Arizona and their horrific defense, you know, they were able to do that. Yeah. Again, like USC's offense, great. USC's defense, really, really bad. Um, and I just think that, like, there's... Uh, a lot of like hand wringing being done right now about USC's performances of late. And there, a lot of it's just being like sold and, and pawned off as PAC 12 incompetence of officiating. Like it's targeted only at USC. I, I just think that's a bunch of BS, frankly. Like I just don't, I don't buy that at all. Yeah, it, it is. If you watch as many, if you watch the whole, and I, you know, these USC fans who come out of the woodwork after having not watched the team for 10 years, 
you know, haven't been watching this conference for the last 10 years. I mean, the officiating has been bad all of the, all around for everybody, and it's no different this year, and you're not being targeted and singled out, so get over yourselves. Yeah. Uh, moving right. on here, Stanford um, going on the road to UCLA. UCLA was favored by 16 and a half. UCLA took care of business. Stanford's bad. This, I had this game on because it was late night and there's nothing else on. But I really was like half watching it and half doing other stuff. And man, ah, this Stanford team is so bad. I mean, they scored 13. Not... You know, seven was late in garbage time. They only had 270 yards of offense. Uh, like, UCLA, UCLA was like on cruise control and won this game 38. I did not watch a single snap of this game. You didn't miss anything. I, all I've seen right now is the scoreboard. I would assume that UCLA ran the ball for a billion yards, and at no point did Stanford put up any resistance, and the game was over at halftime. Like, yeah, just, that's pretty much it. Yeah, Just by looking at the scoreboard, because that's exactly how I would expect this game to go, because Stanford cannot stop the run. They have three scholarship defensive linemen. They're young. They're only good players in the front seven or freshmen, and UCLA is a very good football team with a very good running back, a good quarterback, and an extremely talented offensive coordinator and head coach. And so... Um, yeah, Stanford doesn't stand a chance in a game like this. Like they're very fortunate to get the last two wins they got. They probably should have got three if you count Oregon State, but it it came to an end against a much more quality opponent. Yeah, I'm really kind of shocked they even got the two wins they did because I mean, you just watch them play and they're just so bad. <laughs> I mean, and the other thing you can predict about this game, could be having not watched it, is that you know McKee probably got roughed up and sacked a number of times. Which he oh did. yeah, especially Latu's been playing out of his mind. How many sacks did Latu have in this game? I I don't have it offhand. Okay, I, I can. I'll I'll look while you uh, intro the next game. Yeah. So enough said about that one. Obviously, that was one of the picks we got right this week. So uh, pretty easy to pick uh, UCLA plus or UCLA minus sixteen and a half in that one, and they easily covered. Uh, here's a game where we got wrong, uh, thanks to a late backdoor cover by Colorado on a punt return touchdown late in the game that that made it an eight point victory for Arizona State, forty two to thirty four. In Boulder, Oregon's next opponent and location. Um, you know, what What more can be said about Colorado? You know, Arizona State's not a good football team. They played Borgay again, um, who had a pretty good showing in the win over uh, the Huskies a few weeks back. And he was their, he was uh, basically their full-time quarterback this game. Threw for 435 yards, three touchdowns. Uh, they got another 120 or so on the ground against Colorado, and uh, the game was over at the half. Actually, it wasn't. It was a pretty close game uh, all yeah. the way throughout. So, yeah, Borgat's like pretty clearly something. better than Jones. <laughs> like Jones was not has not been particularly great for ASU. Uh, this kid's been a lot better. A lot better at this Colorado. point. Like, why would you even play Emory Jones anymore? Like, like yeah, I don't think that. I think they've made the change. I don't think he's going to play anymore. But the. Uh, the thing that I want to shout out here most is the Colorado fans. Like they continue to sell out that stadium and fill it for a team that's been horrible. Um, and the kids are playing hard, I think in large part because of that, like they haven't given up on their season. So um, shout out to Colorado. It's like for at least trying both as a fan base and a team, despite the fact that they don't have a whole lot going for them this year. So um, I don't, I don't want to pile on Colorado for being bad. I, I, I have a lot of respect for their fans. Yeah, and, that, and I think that'll be you know a fun environment for Oregon and Oregon fans who make the trip this weekend as well to see to see I mean, a game in Boulder. It's it's one of the one of the best like scenic environments in all of college football uh, down there. So 
this might be the most hostile road environment Oregon's played at, other than the, obviously the opener against Georgia. Um, like Cal is like, yeah, not hostile <laughs> at all. Um, Wazoo's good, but Colorado's a bigger stadium, more people, um, and a pretty active fan base. So yeah, I, I thought the, I mean the Wazoo crowd was pretty good. They they were pretty fired up for most of that game. So yeah, Arizona yeah. crowd was solid as well. But I, I don't know. I just I think that I think the Colorado fan base is probably a, a little bigger. So all right, uh, that wraps up Pac-12 play, where we both won two games of our picks and lost three. So again, our our Pac-12 expertise is is paying dividends, as you can see. <laughs> um. Move on to the SEC, Kentucky, Tennessee, a game that we both picked. Uh, actually, I picked Tennessee. You picked Kentucky. Yeah, I. You did the smart thing and picked the obvious answer. That was always the obvious answer, and I did the dumb thing and tried to like be cute and convince myself that Kentucky stood a chance to not get blown out in this game. And like, frankly, like things went well for Kentucky relatively early, and they just squandered every opportunity that they had in the in the red zone and Tennessee scored basically every drive. So um yeah, this game wasn't very close. That was definitely on the wrong side of this. You were on the right side and um I'm really looking forward to this upcoming Tennessee Georgia game this weekend. Yeah, for sure. Uh this was actually the only game we picked differently this week, uh which normally we have a lot more different picks. We were we picked the same on every other game this week. So I, I feel uh, I feel pretty excited about getting the getting the dub here. I don't know what you were thinking. Forty four to six, Tennessee. Does Tennessee have a good defense? Because I didn't I think they did. They're 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 decent against the run. Um, but yeah, is Kentucky's offense just awful? Then they only put up two hundred. Will yards. Will Levis like might be the most overrated pro prospect at quarterback that I can remember. I'm trying to think of somebody else who was just like hyped up to be like, oh, he's got all this physical and tangible. Like, they keep comparing him to Josh Allen. Like, Josh Allen was actually a good college player. I know a lot of people, a lot of Oregon fans don't remember that because he was pretty bad against Oregon when they were completely outmatched. Um, but, like, in the Mountain West particularly, and then his junior year when they actually had talent around him before it all went pro, uh, Josh Allen was very good. Will Levis, at no point in his career in college, has been even, like, consistently average at the quarterback position. And he's got decent talent, but I, I just I don't see it. I don't see it at all. Their offensive line's substantially worse than last year. They're down in talent on the at the receiver position from last year. I, I just don't think Kentucky's very good. Yeah, he threw three picks and they got blown out by Tennessee. And yeah, that obviously that Georgia Tennessee game will be on our slate of games to pick on our Thursday show. So make sure you listen to us talk about that as well as all the other games next week on Thursday. Um, Oklahoma State, Kansas State, another game we both missed badly on. It was a pick 'em game for all intents and purposes. We both picked Oklahoma State, and the Wildcats won forty-eight to zero. What the heck happened in this game, QB? I don't. I can't explain forty-eight to zero. All I can say is is that. We were both pretty dumb for picking Oki in this game. Like Kansas State's been a team that's been very consistently good all year, and Oklahoma State's a team that's extremely banged up and had like kind of been looking like they were on borrowed time for a couple weeks at least. Like I don't know that they really should have beat Texas, um, and Kansas State just came out and just uncorked one on them. And this kind of felt like, as a spectator, 
uh, as a neutral spectator, kind of like when Oregon played Utah in 2015 with Jeff Locke. Like not not that Spencer Sanders is anywhere near Jeff Locke levels of whatever that was, um, but like the game just completely avalanched out of control, and there was nothing that was going to go right for Oklahoma State. I mean, they like they could have played this for another couple quarters. And I don't think Oklahoma State was scoring. Like this game just everything went wrong for them, and it just seemed like everything, all of the sins of their kind of like. The the scoreboard outperforming their statistical output over the first seven weeks yeah. of the season yeah. caught yeah. up to them at one time and uh, <laughs> tough tough to see but Kansas State's a pretty good football team and uh, I'm glad I I picked them to be in the Big Ten Big Twelve yeah, championship. I think you're you're gonna win that one. I mean, so TCU is basically has a three game lead now on Oklahoma State for one of the spots. Kansas State has a two game lead over the Cowboys for the second spot in the Big Twelve title game. So. We're most likely heading to a TCU versus K-State title game. I, I mean, Baylor or Texas maybe can get back into it if they run the table and get some other help, but it, it well, seems it seems unlikely. Texas and Kansas State still have to play each other, so yes, yes. that'll actually be a really fun game, I think, too, from a matchup standpoint. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. I think Texas can definitely play spoiler. You know, they play TCU still, too, so... I think they have opportunities to to knock off, you know, TCU or K State. You know, whether they knock them out of the the Big Twelve title game or knock them down the CFP standings, one way or the other, I think there's there's a lot more interest still to come in the Big Twelve. Right. I agree. One thing to note on this game too is Kansas State was playing with a backup quarterback, and he played like phenomenal. He played really really well, which is uh, a big change because he's started games for them in the past and years past and he was not good at all. And he was really good in this game and he was pretty good um as a replacement last week in a game that they lost to TCU. Um so something to keep in mind too like with Adrian Martinez hopefully getting more healthy in the coming weeks, Kansas State could get another bump in terms of quality on on offense. Yeah, I I kind of thought Boy, without Adrian Martinez, they're going to be in trouble. But yeah, Howard has really stepped up to the plate, and obviously had 300 yards and four touchdowns in this game. Um, they lost the game at TCU last week, but he played pretty well in that game, and they kept he kept them right there. They only lost by 10 against a high-powered you know TCU offense. So um, yeah, it's going to be fun to watch this uh, watch this Big 12 down the stretch. You want to move over to Illinois and Nebraska? Yeah, I didn't watch a ton of this game. Um, Casey Thompson got hurt at quarterback in the first half for Nebraska, and uh, it just kind of all fell off the rails for Nebraska after that. They really weren't moving the ball before, but they really weren't moving the ball after. Uh, Illinois is, I believe, the number one defense in the country by most analytics. So um, Ryan Walters, possibly a candidate for the Colorado job too, uh, a a Colorado alum. Uh, He's the defensive coordinator at Illinois has spent time at uh, in the SEC at Missouri when, um, oh, shoot, whoever the Arkansas defensive coordinator is now was their head coach. Um, did a really good job there, though, and he's doing an excellent job at Illinois, and that defense is tremendous. And shoot, Tommy DeVito uh, is playing really good football for Illinois on offense, too, at quarterback. So Illinois is a team that I'm really interested to see down the home stretch here. Uh, some tough games coming up. They have Michigan coming up here in a couple weeks. I don't expect them to win that game, but with how well their defense has been playing and how consistently well it's been playing, I think they might be able to keep that game somewhat close. Yeah, before that, they play Purdue in a game that's probably going to decide the Big Ten West. So 
the winner of that game will probably be be the representative out of that division. And yeah, they got a couple of big games coming up. I mean, they've got like they have every all the ingredients in front of them to make a Rose Bowl run. Um, and so I I'm sure they're going to be motivated, but they're like a very quality, like a very typical Big Ten West team, like what we've seen out of Wisconsin or Iowa over over recent years. Yeah, where you just have a really elite defense and a good, strong ball control offense that's efficient and can create some explosives. Um, Illinois is a good football team, and I, I'm excited to see them play down the stretch. Yeah, seven one overall, so four and one in the in the Big Ten, of course. Um, Florida, Georgia. This one we got a push on. It was a 22 point spread for our purposes when we picked it, and the game ended up 42 to 20. Georgia um, won this one pretty handily. They actually had a huge lead in the half. Florida kind of came back in the third quarter, made it interesting, but Georgia kind of shut the door and put it away. Yeah, Georgia won this game twice. They won it in the first half, 28 to three, and then they kind of took their foot off the gas. And Florida found their way back in only only down by a score at one point in the third quarter and then georgia was like okay we have to beat them again and then cover it again um and so georgia substantially better football team than florida i i don't really have a whole lot else to say in this game like brock bowers is a freak darnell washington is a freak um they have a lot of freaks on defense kirby smart has good players and he's a good coach and uh Florida does not have as many good players as Georgia. No, no, not at all. Uh, you know, Brock Bowers, 154 yards and a touchdown. Uh, Bennett did throw two picks, which is probably what helped keep this game closer. Yeah. Overall impressive performance though from Georgia. Really, even when there was doubt, there really wasn't doubt because Georgia just instantly walked down the field and scored. Yeah, for sure, and and maybe maybe they got a little guilty of looking ahead at halftime when they had the big lead, looking ahead to next week's battle. But uh, you know they quickly came back, and I'm sure Kirby uh, didn't let that happen for long. So big matchup, obviously, with Tennessee next week. The winner will be in the driver's seat for the SEC East division and uh, the spot in Atlanta. Let's go yeah. to uh, Happy Valley. Ohio State visited Penn State, came away with a 44-31 victory in a game which was. Much closer than both of us anticipated because we had Ohio State winning, you know, pretty handily. They had a little bit of a dogfight. I never felt like they were going to lose, but it, you know, Penn State sure sure gave them a fight. I've got opinions on this game. Let's hear them. So, opinion number one: Sean Clifford is not a good quarterback. He has never been a good quarterback. At times, he's capable of producing some good outcomes, but you like in the aggregate, if you play Sean Clifford against a good football team for four quarters you're going to lose because he's going to lose the game for you. Like he's going yeah, to turn the ball over yeah. and all three interceptions turned into 21 points. So like that right there almost by itself is the difference in this game. And there was other interceptable balls where players like Parker Washington were just making tremendous plays. Um, the, the, the second thing is James Franklin, like has absolutely no killer instinct as a coach has no idea, like situationally how to coach and manage a game like that. he, was in a very clear situation where he needed to score touchdowns, walked the field goal team out. Uh, they missed it, but there was a penalty that gave them a second chance, backed up. Then there was another penalty on the second one that was missed that gave them another opportunity at a one-yard uh, conversion on fourth and one, which basically after watching their kicker miss two practice kicks, they decided, okay, maybe we should go for it, even though it was obviously the correct decision the entire time. Um, and they lucked their way into a touchdown there 
just based on happenstance correcting, which was an obvious coaching mismanagement by Franklin. Um, and so, like, this is this has to be so frustrating if you're a Penn State fan. Like, you have a much more talented, much better quarterback sitting on the bench. Everyone who's watched Drew Aller play this year for Penn State knows it. Like, Sean Clifford has been the same player for Penn State now for I think this is his sixth year there. Like, this, 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 this should have been done a long time ago, and if they don't make the change now, it just tells me that they're totally content being the third best team in the East. Um, and, and it's really, really frustrating because that's a hell of an environment. Um, they have the talent at other places, as shown by the fact that they were largely able to hold down that Ohio State offense for most of the meaningful time. But their coach mismanages situations. He mismanages the offense in terms of the quarterback position. And Sean Clifford is just not a quarterback that's good enough at beating top five teams. Yeah, I I totally agree with everything you said. I I I don't understand the people who like the love I hear some people have for Sean Clifford. I I look at him, I watch him play, I look at his stats. I I just don't see it. I I mean, I mean he's certainly not a terrible quarterback. But no, he's fine. He's, like if average is what you want, like it, he's gonna be really good against the bad teams. But when you play a good team, Sean Clifford is bad. He's gonna put the ball in in harm's way. He's extremely inefficient. He's inaccurate. His feet are all over the place. Like, I I don't want to pick on the kid again. Like, not that he cares what I think or he'll ever listen to this podcast. But, like, Sean Clifford is, like, the jaggiest of jag quarterbacks. And Penn State has better players than that. And they and just because of fear and lack of balls, like, Franklin is not pulling the trigger. And it's uh, losing them games. Like they, they were uncompetitive against Michigan, and they had an opportunity to get a big win at home here, and they were in, unable to capitalize because of the sins of mismanaging that position for the last six months. Yeah, I mean, they really, I mean, they they threw interceptions on their first two possessions of the game in a game in which Ohio State, you know, frankly started slowly. I mean, they, you know, they could have been. You know, they, and you know, and then Penn State kind of rattled off a, a run in the second quarter to go up, you know, fourteen ten. And had they not like completely, you know, shot themselves in the foot early, like they could have had a a couple of possession lead in a game and really, uh, you know, they had all really of the luck, done something. Like, all of the luck that was required for them to win this game and pull off the upset was present. Yeah. But the problem was is that their quarterback just undid all of that good luck with bad turnovers. Yeah, two individual notes for Iowa State. You know, Marvin Harrison Jr., 10 catches, 185 yards. The guy's the guy's incredible. He's going to be playing on Sundays as soon as is humanly possible. And then, you know, must be JTT, JT Tumala, must be mentioned. He, I, like, that was the most dominant single-player defensive performance in college football that I've seen in a very long time. Yeah, JTT was awesome in this game. Um, over time, they were able to start getting pressure on Clifford. Um, really, the defense, I think, is the story for Ohio State this year because I don't think that the offense has really lived up to expectations. Like As you mentioned, Marvin Harrison Jr. has been really, really good. Um, and they've had individual pieces perform at a high level, but I don't think that this offense over the last couple of weeks, and I know the scoreboards would indicate otherwise, has actually performed to maybe the level of billing that it's been receiving. 
Um, like even against Iowa, yeah. they really struggled for large portions of that game offensively, and it took some short fields and some good turnovers. And like I would, I would call them forced turnovers by the Ohio State defense. So hell of a job with that defense by Jim Knowles. Like I did not think he was going to be able to turn that thing over as quickly as he has. Um, and they're playing really, really good football on defense. I mean, look at look at Ohio State's schedule this year. I mean, yeah, they, they played Notre Dame in week one. It's a Notre Dame team that turned out to be awful at that point in time, 121 to 10. Then the rest of their games, Arkansas State, Toledo, Wisconsin, Rutgers, Michigan State, Iowa, Penn State. Like, that's not that's not an awe-inspiring schedule. And yeah, they're putting up a lot of points, but on who? Their defense, I agree, is more impressive. And I, who would you take right now, Michigan or Ohio State, neutral field? Who are you taking? That's tough. I'm, it's gonna I'm, be a good game. It's gonna be a good game. <laughs> Michigan can't score in the red zone, um, which is a requisite to beating Ohio State. Um, and until they get that figured out, I would favor Ohio State. Yeah, the games, the games in uh, in Ohio, right? The shoe. Um, yeah, it's in the shoe as well, which is another yeah. thing. Um, but I do think, like, frankly, I do think that Michigan's going to be able to like play ball control. Um, and Ohio State has not ran the ball well this year. Yeah, it'll be another good game. I think so. Anyway, I I'm probably with you. I think being it being that it's at home, and that Ohio State's defense is is playing as well as it is, and Michigan's offense is is certainly not gonna not one that's gonna you know normally put up a ton of points. So I, I probably with you that I'd take Ohio State, but I, I wouldn't be shocked if Michigan won. Um, which I you know at the beginning of the season I would have been. So yeah, I should qualify that like. Ohio State's racked up all kinds of explosive rushing yards against bad teams, but against the better defenses, they've struggled. Uh, one more game. Speaking of Notre Dame, uh, went to Syracuse, took on the Orange, uh, coming off their disappointing loss to Clemson last week, and you know they unfortunately two in a row. Notre Dame found some offensive life, um, put up 41-24, the victory at Syracuse in a game that we both picked wrong again. Yeah, par for the course for this week. Um, Garrett Schrader, Syracuse quarterback, got hurt in the first half. Offense pretty much went out when he went out, and so Notre Dame was able to control this game, run the ball, and get out of there with a win. Yeah, just 116 yards passing for Notre Dame. (laughs) They did run for 246, obviously, but only a 4.4-yard average. This is just kind of like some old-school three yards in a cloud of dust style football. Which was enough. This is like, in terms of like game flow, this is Mario Cristobal's wet dream. Yeah, I think you're right on that. This is exactly the type of team he would like to be. So, speaking, go ahead. Speaking of, do we do we throw like a footnote in that like it took four overtimes for Miami to score 14 points and win 14 to 12? I mean, we can. I, I thought <laughs> about, you know, do we want to beat up on, on Miami even more? Uh, they I did just, win. I just thought it's funny because, like, all week, so they, they got a big commitment from a five-star corner this week, and oh, Miami's back, everything's great again, and then it's like, oh, we have to play, we actually have to play football on Saturdays, and like, you're going against a Virginia team that's like literally Colorado levels of bad um, as a two-point favorite, and you get a push in four overtimes where like <laughs> Virginia actually kind of controlled the game in every metric. <laughs> Yeah, and it was crazy watching it too because it wasn't. It was like the overtimes where nobody was scoring. It was like, nope, can't you know, can't score, can't you know. And even then, the first, 
the first of the two point conversions. Nope, didn't get the conversion. Nope, didn't get the conversion. It was just, it's just bad. It's just bad. <laughs> yeah. No. And, and and man, watching Miami celebrate after you know pulling off that victory was it just kind of you just kind of chuckle. You're just like, okay. I mean, uh, yeah. I, and and Miami's four and four now. They got to win two more games to make a bowl game. They got Florida State. Georgia Tech, Clemson, and Pittsburgh. So, yeah, that's, the, that's not going to be a slam dunk. You, they have to win two out of the three against Georgia Tech, um, Florida State, and Pittsburgh. And I don't know that they'll be favorites in two of those three. Probably one. Yeah, if they if they lose to Florida State, man, that path is going to get really tight. Yeah, it's going to be difficult, and like they're not beating Clemson, so mark that one off. At that point, you have to win out against Georgia Tech and Pitt yeah. just to get to bowl eligibility, which this team, that team, desperately needs. Like they need all the practice time and extra developmental time they can get. Maybe they, maybe they, like maybe with that extra practice time, uh, they could learn that punting the ball in plus territory from the thirty-seven is a bad, bad decision. Yeah, especially when you take a timeout right before it to decide what you're going to do. I, I think one of them was, uh, let's take a timeout and then we're going to punt anyway. And then the second time they punted from inside the 40 was, we didn't want to get the penalty, so let's take a timeout. <laughs> take the penalty. It's actually going to help you when you're punting from the 37. Yeah, no, that would be too intuitive, though. But regardless, let's uh, let's wrap this thing up. Let's move on. Yeah, just one other quick note, and we won't belabor it, but uh, the Big 12 apparently has come to an agreement to extend their current contract with ESPN and Fox. So it's six six years extension. That starts, though, in after the, their current deal ends, which their current deal still has two more seasons on it beyond the current one. So the new deal will start in the 2025 football season. And basically, it's a status quo deal from a money standpoint. Um, if you look at you know, everyone talks about average numbers, right? The old the old contract averaged, you know, two hundred and twenty million a year, and the new contract averaged three hundred eighty million a year. So it looks like a seventy five percent increase. But when you actually look, break it down in the year by year with the annual escalators and the fact that the old contract was twelve years and the new one six, uh, it basically just continues a five percent annual raise that they've been getting, you know, every year for the last twelve years. So. It's good for them because they're losing their two best programs and not going down in in value. They're they're basically staying flat. You know, it is a little bit down maybe in the fact that this deal includes the tier three rights, whereas their old one had tier three carved out separately. Um, but good for the Big Twelve. They got the extension they needed. They get two Fox windows and I think two ESPN windows. ESPN will get you know first choice of games throughout the season. All their championships will be on ESPN as well. Fox is taking some basketball out of the Big 12, which is obviously the Big 12's best asset because uh, they're, they're the best basketball conference in the country right now. Um, it, really, the impact is it leaves one window open on Fox um, for the Pac-12, maybe, if, if Fox is interested. ESPN still has several windows that they need to fill. The question is, what is the Pac-12 going to be able to do as they as they continue negotiating now? Are they going to be able to make a deal with Fox, ESPN, neither, both? Is Amazon getting involved? Is Apple getting involved? And what does the monetary comparison look like? Um, you know, I think most most people who I read on this seem to think that the Pac-12 and the Big 12 deals will probably end up being fairly similar in value on a per-school, per-year basis, but... 
We'll see. Yeah, I've been kind of unplugged from that whole thing. I don't really have a lot of like good to add to the conversation, but um like if you I think it's important to know like staying staying flat and level, losing the two most valuable brands by a big margin while adding four brands that I I don't think anyone would argue are even close to as valuable as what you're losing. Um that has to be considered a win for them. So um, a good job of salvaging as much as they could by your mark and, and the Big 12 team. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think it, it is a win for them. and the, They have stability. I think what they wanted coming into this is why they didn't go to the open market like the Pac-12. First of all, they would have had to wait a long time, 18 more months. But I think they wanted stability and they wanted um, you know kind of surety. And I think the one thing they had selling for them besides the basketball and the, some of the four time zone deals is they have a lot of parity in their conference, which makes for more games on any given week that are likely of interest to networks, right? And I think that's something that the Pac-12 has working against them a little bit. Um, being top-heavy, you know, in any given week, there's probably less games that that a network partner would be interested in airing, in the in, especially in a 10-team league versus a 12-team team league. But, you know, the Pac-12 has some other things that they can try to sell. It's interesting to, to see where this goes. I think the big thing here is that you know, staying flat when the Big Ten doubles and the SEC doubles is not where you need to be. And regardless of whether the Pac-12 is slightly higher or slightly lower than the Big 12, both both are falling significantly behind, um, you know, the Big Two conferences and, and are, are going to just continue to fall further and further behind as we move forward. Yep, something I really don't fancy thinking about. So I guess that's probably a good point to end this, this podcast on. Um, Make sure to follow uh, the podcast at QB11 Show on Twitter. Uh, thanks to all of the new reviews that we've been getting. Uh, if you haven't left a review yet, we really appreciate all the five-star reviews. Helps grow the show. Um, make sure to follow myself at QB11SD on Twitter. Uh, Doug Scott uh, at DouglasTS on Twitter. Uh, we just really appreciate everybody's su- continued support of the show. Um, and, and we've got some fun stuff planned for the near future. So continue to tune in and we'll uh, talk to you guys with our preview on Thursday.